Paul Frields from, what, what's your official title? Fedora Project Leader. Fedora Project Leader. Yeah, um, and, I, and I actually work for Red Hat. Okay, all right. And actually, sitting here uh, talking to you, I see that on your desk you have a Red Hat. An actual Red Hat, yeah. They, uh, so one of the things that happens when you, uh, when you begin working for Red Hat, uh, besides the brutal hazing <laughs> right. is, and they, they hit you with sticks and things. Other than, but but the thing that you get at the end of the tunnel is the is the red hat, the red fedora. Um but I I have a I don't I don't know if I should be making this confession here, but I actually have three of them. Uh-oh. Um that that particular hat that you're looking at is one that was sent to me by a friend um back when I was uh, a volunteer, a Fedora contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been working on documentation for a few years at that point, and um, you know, I don't want to overstate my part in the team, but you know, I think I was like one of the key people. I mean, I would consistently come in and and do work, and I mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. You know, we had done a, I think one or two sets of, of release notes for for Fedora at that point. That may have been around. I want to say it was around Fedora. Core five back when we had the core, right? Um, and I think it was either five or six. And uh, he sent me that that hat. And interestingly, it's the only hat that I have that actually fits me <laughs> because I have an enormous head. And my wife will tell you that for for nothing that I have a, I have a big head. I try not to have a big head. Metaphorically um, speaking, or are we talking about literal I, I'm, I'm, size of, well, of I, you know, circumference of head. Well, I think I think it's circumference because I mean that's that's like a that's an extra large hat. Nah. And I mean, and it just fits. And I've got a couple others. The one that Red Hat gave me when I was hired was large, so they apparently didn't know that I had this <laughs> swelled ego. They didn't know at that point, but you know, that's how I, I got the job. I I, uh, I skunked them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> cool. Um, so, and it's actually a fedora, right? It is. It okay. is actually a. Fedora. So the official Red Hat is. I didn't really actually know that. I didn't know the official. I mean, I saw that. I mean, obviously, the the logo has it. I guess I didn't identify that as a fedora. Yeah, the great thing about it is, I mean, you know that our our name, the Fedora Project's name, came originally from Fedora.us, which was run by uh, a student then. Uh, I think he was a grad student, uh, CS, at uh, University of Hawaii by the name of Warren Tagami, and he started Fedora US as basically a way of making add-on RPM packages for Red Hat Linux, which back then was a, you know, a boxed product you'd go buy it in a store right, for yeah. 40 bucks, right? Yeah. Um, so he would, you know, he he actually got some folks together to package up things that, you know, Red Hat wasn't interested in doing for whatever reason, and so they had this fedora.us repository. So even back then they had, you know, places you can get those RPMs and just you know download them and add them to your system. I um, had no idea. I did yeah. not know this backstory. Yeah, and so the reason they well, so they called it Fedora because it was a way. Obviously, they couldn't use Red Hat's right. trademark. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, just like you wouldn't, you know, make a store selling like, you know, things to add to your your iPod and call it, you know, Apple Add-on. <laughs> right. You know, they they get a little upset. Um, so you know, fedora was a play on words because of this, you know, this red fedora that the yeah. Shadow Man wore, yeah, yeah. right, the little Shadow Man logo. So, um, so fedora.us eventually merged with Red Hat's original Red Hat Linux project, which was where they had tried to sort of turn their Red Hat Linux product into, into a community it. overnight. Yeah. Okay, didn't work really well. But when what they realized is that what they were missing is, um, you know, some piece of the piece of community and infrastructure that, yeah. that Warren had. So. 
um, you know, when they put them together, that's what became the Fedora project. Well, actually, that brings that brings up another question, and I hope I'm not retreading too much of other interviews that you've done. But um, when did you come to Linux in general? No, actually, no. That's it's in, that's a, a good question. Actually, I haven't had a whole lot of people ask. Um, you know, I guess people when when you when you've you know happened to land in a job like this, like like I did, right? Um, you know, people just assume that you've been doing it your whole life, right? Um, and I'm. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not probably as long time a Linux user as some of the people that I've met. I started using Linux in, it was around the beginning of 1997, okay. or the end of 1996, beginning of 1997. Wow. Um, and I actually worked in a, uh, uh, a, a criminal laboratory, like forensic laboratory. Oh, wow. And we were processing digital media. So, you know, if there were cases involving, you know, this kind of crime, that kind of crime, and there was some sort of computer media involved, involved our laboratory processed that stuff. Hmm. And at the time, we were paying an enormous amount of money for proprietary tools. Hmm. Things like, uh, you know, a, 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 an application that would allow you to boot off a DOS boot disk mm -hmm. into a 16-bit and single user environment right. and then copy one disk completely uh -huh. the hard disk completely yeah. from one to another like a dd like a dd yeah yeah so, so you just hit you just hit the magical point uh, where i started yeah. using linux and discovered the dd command after you know a month or two of playing with it you know friend uh, who came in the office was a solaris guy and he uh he plopped a book on my desk one day and said this is Linux. It's. I think it's going to be really big, and you ought to. I think I had been bothering him about like trying to teach me some Unix stuff yeah. because I thought that you know the Sun workstation he worked on. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was fascinating. That's cool. And uh, he plopped this book on my desk, and he's like, "You're going to want to learn this. I think it's going to be big." Uh -huh. And so you know that Red Hat Linux 4.1. I started cool. on that, and uh, you know I discovered the DD command. I'm like. We are spending just made everything obsolete. <laughs> thousands of dollars on yeah. all this software, and we don't have to. Yeah. Look at this. Wow. You know? And I started showing people the light, more or less. I said, and more, moreover, well, did you know while you're copying that disk, you can actually be filling out your notes or you know doing other work on our on our system. You don't have to. You know, your system doesn't have to be a brick because it's you know oh I'm busy I'm busy copying this. Yeah, disk. yeah, yeah. Don't bother me. Right. <laughs> Essentially, we had these long desks of hardware and. If you started running one of these copies, which of course we did a lot, sure. the system was—I mean, that was it. It was tied up, so we had to have more workstations than you could possibly believe. Meaning that you had to have a license for each workstation. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It was, it and was their uptime wasn't even necessarily complete because it was more like if you had that many drives to copy, then you were using all the workstations. Oh, yeah. You didn't, you weren't, so they were sitting around. Right, and and I mean, there were times where you'd actually run out, where you wow. would literally say, "I can't work." Yeah. Uh, today, at, at least I can't do any computer-based work. You know, I can go fill out some paperwork or something mm -hmm, right. like that. Um, but uh, you know, what would happen is a lot of people would schedule the stuff. You know, they they would basically set everything in the last half hour before they went home, at least on their last station, so that they'd be able to work through the day. I mean, it was just uh, looking back, it just seems ridiculous mm -hmm. uh, how we did business that way. So, well, anyway, the, the the long and short of the story is actually the long, I guess. We're really not doing the short version. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but the, um, to, to make a long story longer, uh, 
I, I basically took that as like the harbinger for the rest of my career. And mm-hmm. I spent the next few years writing forensic protocols for Unix evidence and teaching uh, all of our uh, all of our various forensic people out in the field nationwide wow. how to use Linux. And we based everything on Red Hat. And I tried a few other distros, but I always came back to Red Hat because it was it was easier to install than anything out there. Mm-hmm. And it had this great documentation backing. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, it had a good company behind it. And, you know, honestly, as I looked more into it and I started to care more about the ethics of free software, mm-hmm. I, I looked at what the company did, you know, that they actually really put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. So they were yeah. just an open source company through and through. And I was really impressed by that. And so I've, you know, I stuck with them. And, um, you know, I'm not too big to admit that. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, had these sort of dreams one day of of coming to Red Hat, and right. uh, you know, Max Spivak called me one day and and uh, said that you know he was looking to move on to do something else at Red Hat, and uh, was I interested in taking his job? Cool. And, uh, yeah. So it was, it was a, it was a good day. It was, it was a, it was a hard decision because I had a, you know, a really good job. I was. You know, things were going very well, stable. My family was happy, and um, it was a little bit of a little bit of a you know fear situation. Sure. Like people fear the unknown, and I yeah, thought, yeah. you know what, life is just too short. Yeah, exactly. Just too short. You've got to take a chance when it comes along, especially if it's something that you really care about. Which yeah. obviously, I mean, if you're doing Fedora documentation every spare moment you have in your 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 hobby time anyway, then obviously you care about it. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean it was a way basically to spend more time doing what doing I doing what you wanted like to doing. do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it was it was a it was a, a, a very excellent time of my life. I feel I look back on that and say, at least you know, for whatever else may happen, I can look back on that and say, you know, I'm not gonna have any regrets about it. And yeah, that's something yeah. that I think you know, people should uh, you know should look at their lives, and you know you don't want to look back and regret not having done something. Right. So the adoption of Linux at that old job, um, the adoption of Linux was pretty quick there. Would you say, like the the forensics lab? Um, it was uh, it was over a period of I would say a couple years, mm-hmm. and you know the reason being is that there was some entrenched technology there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all proprietary, and they were you know you know paying out of the nose for it, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, when, <laughs> you know, when I showed them basically that they didn't have to pay a contractor a huge amount of money to build these, you know, pipelines to have right. incredibly automated processes, um, I mean, it, it did shake things up a little. I, I feel like, um, you know, it was, it was more, it was more, I think, that um, the people who really understood what they were doing and understood the nature of scientific methodology, mm-hmm. uh, and by that I guess I mean you know repeatability uh, uh, that you have some sort of um, you have the notion of being able to take the tools that you use and present them in a court of law. You can show open source code directly to a court. You can give it to the defense uh, attorney or defense. Um, uh, uh, contractors or whatever, and they can, you know, take that code and do the exact same tests that you did. Right. Okay. You know, it's a hundred percent repeatable, and yeah. it's and it's the transparency is what makes it so powerful. It's not something that you know we this laboratory sort of built in a black box. And somewhere. you can't look at your code. Yeah, I know what yeah. you're talking about. Jeremy Allison says a lot of the same stuff about the advantages, at least in the legal area of open source, because there's no risk 
that the code is tainted because you can look at the code. Right, right. I mean, you can. Uh, there's the the way that we could drill down into it basically made it. Uh, I mean, essential was a no brainer. So mm-hmm. people who, again, if they understood that scientific methodology and they understood the under the underpinnings. Uh, forensic science in you know in the legal sense and uh, you know in the and I think in the in the the ethical sense of being able to you know have this very transparent box that you're right. doing all your work in um, they were very quick to embrace it I would say and over the next couple of years you know as people started learning more about it and they realized how easy it could be and yes you had to go to a command line and run some commands but sure. we were already doing that anyway mm-hmm. yeah. um, the people who were doing this work were not they weren't uh, Windows point and click junkies you know a lot of them understood how to do things in a command line yeah, already right yeah and uh, so it was very very interesting to them the fact that we could take you know, the the um, commodity hardware that, yeah. we, that we had so much of and actually have a much much greater return on investment for that same hardware well Red Hat just recently and you might not have I don't know if you're able to comment on this or not, but Red Hat posted on their official blog, I think it was, a video about open source in government. Did you see this video? Oh, is, is this pretty new? It's um, really new. Okay, I may have missed it. I've because I've, I'm literally coming here like almost back to back after another conference. Okay, and I've been a, I've been you a little web deprived. Yes, so. <laughs> you should watch this video because it's really cool. It is Red Hat saying that you know government institutions shouldn't be throwing their money at something that doesn't belong to the public when the government belongs ideally to the public you Absolutely. know and that if 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 the government is truly going to serve the people and I might be adding some of my own apolitical beliefs here but essentially they're saying that if the, if the government is going to be owned by the people then the the software that the government uses need to be needs to be owned by the right. people I mean, which is th- open source not not Microsoft. Absolutely, and and you know, I, and I can't agree enough. You know, especially there have been, uh, you know, we've had many years now of discussion about open source in, for example, voting systems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a that's a pretty old argument at this point, and I don't think that there's anyone whose opinion is respectable uh, who believes that. Uh, proprietary technologies running the underpinnings of our democracy mm-hmm. is a good thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm frankly horrified by that idea. Yeah, yeah. And there have been enough. You know, there have been enough uh, uh, examples of people doing uh, penetration testing and scientific testing, and you know, there there have been enough instances where the the efficacy and the reliability of those sorts of systems has been called into question. Mm-hmm. But I think that. You know, no citizen of the United States ought to be thinking that that uh, that a proprietary voting technology is something we ought to put any stock in whatsoever. I think it's it's uh, it, you know again I'd say that's another it's another no brainer. You know I haven't seen the video and you know just speaking as a you know just a, a person who works with open source all day. I I mean I absolutely would like to see more of it in government. And I'll tell you you know one of the major problems that I've seen in government. You know, and I was, uh, you know, as government employee for almost almost 20 years. The thing that I saw often is the government getting charged over and over for essentially the same basic building blocks, all of right. which are readily available, yeah, consumable in open source. I mean, right? Open source is about, um, and, and I'll, I'll paraphrase. I guess what Greg de Koenigsberg, a good friend of mine, says. You know, it's always a good idea to steal from Greg because <laughs> he's a smart guy and and uh, and he talks real purdy. So, one of the things I heard him say recently was that there are so many people in government who are doing work that is very specialized and very requires a very deep. 
corpus of knowledge, mm-hmm. right? And those people are some of the best in the world at what they do. And you can look all, I mean, people can make jokes about the government, you know, and, and, and government employees, and that's fine. I mean, there's, I'm sure that there's, you know, wide swaths of employees all over, uh, you know, all over the private and public sectors that, uh, you know, you can do that. But I believe that there are areas in government where you've got incredibly, incredibly brilliant people who know a lot about a very specialized area. And it does not make sense for those people to be paying over and over again for basic building blocks of solutions. Right. When essentially if you put those building blocks in front of them, I mean, what they really need is they need Legos. Yeah. They have what it takes to put the Legos together into something that is a, you know, an amazing contraption that is going to be very well suited to solve their particular problems. Mm-hmm. But instead, you know, there's this culture that's grown up over many years. There's this, you know, this, um, you know, I don't know what you call it. Uh, I, I like to think of it as sort of a, you know, this blood-sucking middle level of IT consultants that are essentially just leeching the resources out of the government constantly. You know, I think that there's there there is a uh, there is a very respectable um, and uh, commendable move nowadays towards. You know more transparency in government, and I think that that should carry over into the systems that government uses. Mm-hmm. There, you know, there we have some interesting, some very interesting um, fingers and various pies. And, and when I say we, not Red Hat, I mean um, actually some of the folks who are working in the Fedora project mm-hmm. uh, who've got some uh, tools that we are making available and and uh, demoing in a couple places to try and show how government data can be made more available, readily consumable, and available near real time Mm -hmm. to citizens everywhere. So, you know, people will essentially be able to build, you know, mashups of government data on, you know, on on an accelerated basis. Yeah, wow, that's really cool. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.